Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 13, 2018. Your host, Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. This week, we learned whom the president intends to fill the U.S. Supreme Court seat recently vacated by Anthony Kennedy. That nominee is Brett Kavanaugh, presently judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Kavanaugh formerly served as a clerk for the outgoing Kennedy and since then has played a senior role in the independent counsel investigation of Bill Clinton during the 1990s, worked in private practice at Kirkland & Ellis, and served as counsel to the president under George W. Bush before the latter nominated Kavanaugh to the federal appellate judiciary in 2003. His nomination was slowed somewhat by partisan warring before eventually culminating in a 57-36 confirmation vote in 2006. Since his appointment, he's also taught courses at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown Law Schools. Many open questions present themselves now about the new, more exacting confirmation gauntlet that awaits Kavanaugh, and many are trying to familiarize themselves with just who the circuit judge is and how his potential ascension to the court could sway it. To help shed some light on all of the above, we'll hear from three guests today. First, we'll be joined by a former Kavanaugh clerk, Justin Walker, now a professor at University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law, and who strongly champions Kavanaugh as both a person and a judge. Then we'll hear from Gail Trotter, an attorney and legal expert from Washington, D.C., who believes Kavanaugh and his originalist textualist approach would be an excellent addition to the high bench. And finally, Sanford Levinson, professor of UT Austin Law School and prolific author of constitutional law-related books, will join us to share some concern that, in his view, Kavanaugh is more a movement conservative than a neutral originalist. First, two quick reminders. Don't forget that our show is now available on iTunes in the podcast app. Search for the weekly appellate report there, and any subscriptions and rates and reviews you'd like to leave would be most appreciated. And of course, as always, don't forget that California CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. It's a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Finish that in one hour credit can be yours. No further preamble then, I welcome in our first guest. He is Justin Walker, assistant professor at the University of Louisville's Brandeis School of Law, formerly clerk for Judge Kavanaugh, and incidentally for Justice Kennedy, whom Kavanaugh would replace. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so you had the chance to to clerk for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, and incidentally also the, uh, the justice he would replace on the Supreme Court, Anthony Kennedy. Maybe to start before we get into sort of more legal considerations of um, Judge Kavanaugh's approach to to the law, can you describe for me a bit uh, just sort of what kind of person he is and maybe what sort of things you, you learned about him as a as, as a as a person as a, a professional mentor in, in your life? I'm happy to. One of the first things that comes to mind is that he's really a model. Judge Kavanaugh is a model of collegiality. Uh, he served on a court with 17 other judges. They have been appointed by Presidents Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, the other Bush. They span the ideological spectrum, but they all consider Judge Kavanaugh to be a friend. They all respect Judge Kavanaugh. I think in addition to his civility and collegiality, I also really enjoyed getting to see how highly he prioritizes his family. You know, there are so many people who have kind of high-profile jobs um, who who maybe don't, uh, but you know, Judge Kavanaugh was such a devoted husband and devoted father. He coaches his girls' basketball team, uh, and you know, whenever he and I see each other these days, you know, one of the first questions I always ask is, you know, how how's the team doing? How they do last season? 
he would probably want me to point out the last season they went undefeated. <laughs> so uh, they've had quite a year. And then, you know, I guess um, one other thing to, to, to know about Judge Kavanaugh is whatever the opposite of a Georgetown cocktail party elitist is, Judge Kavanaugh is the opposite. Uh, there was a great story in the Washington Post that led off with an interview uh, with the local bartender in his neighborhood, in Judge Kavanaugh's neighborhood. And the bar, the bartender said uh, that all they'd ever done is talk sports for years. Uh, he didn't know that Judge Kavanaugh was a judge. In fact, he didn't even know that he was a lawyer. So that's very in character. Um, we're very in character with Judge Kavanaugh. Yeah. Then maybe just moving on to to talk about some of his characteristics as as a, a judge, what um, what would you say are some of the more salient characteristics that he that has that sort of define the way he approaches um, judging? Sure, well, I can kind of start uh, start with the general and then get specific. So, um, you know, he's a very fair minded, independent person. Uh, he treats all the litigants with respect. Uh, he never approaches a case with any kind of favoritism for one side or the other based on some political outcome or policy preference. Instead, he starts with the words of the Constitution or the words of the statute. And then, you know, he thinks those words can be informed by statutory structure, by history, by precedence of the court. And, you know, he, he goes where that text leads. Uh, and so I saw him do that, you know, every day in case after case. Uh, one of the, the cases that he decided my year, I think, really demonstrates this. And since you're, I think your audience is, is probably a, a little bit more in the, the legal, ner- the, the nerdy legal weeds than maybe some audiences, I, I'll, I'll talk about it for a second because I really think it reveals a lot about Judge Kavanaugh. There was a, a statute about a criminal defendant paying restitution. Uh, in this case, it was restitution to the government that he had stolen from. And four different circuit courts had come out on the side of the prosecution in interpreting this statute. But Judge Kavanaugh brought his textualist principles to the question. Uh, He was on a panel with judges appointed by Democrats and Republicans. Uh, He led that panel to create a one-to-four circuit split, ruling in favor of the criminal defendant. And then that issue eventually made it to the Supreme Court just this past term. And the Supreme Court vindicated Judge Kavanaugh unanimously in an opinion written by Justice Breyer. So I think you see a lot of what makes Judge Kavanaugh a great judge in that opinion. Number one, how fair-minded he is. Number two, what a textualist he is. And number three, just how seriously and how thoughtfully he takes his job in every case, not just the kind of you know high-profile, uh, big-issue cases. Which case was that, if I could ask you? Sure. So his case was called United States of Papano, and... The Supreme Court case this term called Lagos v. United States, and right. it's and it's one of 13 times the Supreme Court has uh, vindicated one of Judge Kavanaugh's opinion, which is a pretty unparalleled record of being endorsed by the Supreme Court over certainly. the past 12 years. I, it, it's certainly something that one notes, and and having have, you certainly had a chance to read a, a few of Judge Kavanaugh's opinions from the D.C. Circuit, nowhere near the, the full complement of 300 of them, but he he seems to have a pretty incredibly encyclopedic grasp of some kind of historical sources and concepts that, uh, you know, one doesn't think 
judges might encounter um, without really kind of looking for them. Is that sort of a, a big part of his textual approach is getting to kind of dive into the maybe historical period when a statute or constitutional provision was, was written? Oh, my goodness. You know, he He wants to read everything. He wants to read, obviously, the text, but then he also wants the precedents, and he even wants the law review articles that have been written about the question. Uh, so, you know, I think he's a, he, he's a very thoroughgoing judge in terms of the research that he wants, and then also in terms of his writing process. I mean, we had some opinions our year that went through triple-digit number of drafts. <laughs> um, so over 100 drafts of the opinion, because uh, he, wants, he just wants to do everything he can to get the legal question right. Maybe onto a couple of more specific legal questions. You've written a bit, sort of in, in um, championing the nomination and confirmation of, of Judge Kavanaugh. One article you wrote uh, specifically mentioned that he has long been a, a, a champion of religious liberty. So, of course, a, a practicing Catholic and by all accounts a devoted one. Um, can you t- tell me a bit about that sort of strain of his his jurisprudence and how that's come come out? Uh, sure. Now, with regard to religious liberties, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things I admire about Judge Kavanaugh is he cares a lot about what the framing generation thought when the Constitution was written and uh, ratified and when the Bill of Rights was written and ratified. And I think that he believes that the framers put a high priority on religious liberty. Uh, today, of course, religious liberty is is um, a claim that's sometimes brought by People in a, in a in a majority religion, but uh, and, but throughout U.S. history, it, it's often been a claim brought by uh, small religions and sometimes um, unpopular religions. And so, if you if if you kind of think historically a little bit here, when Judge Kavanaugh was chair of the Federalist Society's Religious Liberties Practice Group, and when he as a as an attorney was doing pro bono work on behalf of plaintiffs raising religious liberty claims. This was a time in in the 1990s when President Bill Clinton and 97 senators, including Joe Biden, Pat Leahy, Paul Wellstone, were uh, sponsoring, writing, voting for, and signing the Religious uh, Freedom Restoration Act. And so I I tell that history because I think Judge Kavanaugh's, um, you know, willingness to or understanding of the framers desire uh, to protect religious liberty um, you know is long-standing and shows that you know it, this for him is not a political issue this is not about you know winners and losers this is just about being faithful to a provision of the Bill of Rights that was really designed to protect people who, who are in minority religions and, and uh, civil liberties their civil liberties so um, I, I think he's been a strong champion of that clause of the of the First Amendment. I think, though, that he's he's been a champion of every every clause in the Constitution. And so I don't want to give the impression that um, you know this is the <laughs> the only part of the Constitution he's faithful to. Uh, you know, I, I, in working with him for a year, and also in taking his constitutional law class, where the very first assignment was read the actual Constitution beginning to end. Uh, this is a person who has a reverence for the entire Constitution. Okay, maybe uh, another section of the Constitution that 
we uh, might, might invoke here in a second in speaking about w one particular um, law that's been before the courts a couple of times in the last decade, uh, the Affordable Care Act, the signature legislation in Barack Obama's uh, couple of terms, he'd probably say. It, that Judge Kavanaugh's approach to cases where that legislation has come before him is something that's been brought to the fore here sort of by, by both sides a little bit, and the, the left and the right of political center um, voicing some concern over the, the way he's approached the ACA case, or I think maybe one or two that, that came before him. You wrote a bit about this. I suppose, what is, would you say his approach would be in that uh, that sort of area of, of law, and, and specifically with that uh, law at issue, because it certainly is still one that is uh, cont continues to be challenged. Uh, I, th I think that his writing in that case is is maybe the area of his judicial record that is the most misunderstood. And so I, I did try to to write an op-ed to, to correct the record a little bit. One of the the clues we have that that maybe not everybody is uh, understanding what what's going on in this is that you know you've heard this week from people on the far left that Judge Kavanaugh is going to take away people's health care. And then we heard last week from people on the far right that he wasn't against Obamacare sufficiently enough. So um, I, I think just sticking with the opinion that he wrote and the issues that were raised, he he wrote an opinion in Seven Skies Beholder that really took a very textualist approach to an obscure statute called the Anti-Injunction Act. And and paraphrase here, but Anti-Injunction Act says you can't challenge a law that requires you to pay money to the federal government until you pay the money. And Judge Kavanaugh went, you know, really deep into this this statute, this Anti-Injunction Act, which he had actually written a couple of pretty long opinions about in the years prior, unrelated unrelated matters. And he said, you know, I read this statute to say that we just don't have jurisdiction as a court to decide this question. Yet, and I think that's you know the word. The last word there is the word that is maybe uh, forgotten sometimes. He didn't say that the court cannot resolve the question of whether the individual mandate in the ACA was constitutional or not. All, all he said was that uh, that the court simply could not hear this claim in, until the the money had been paid by the challengers to the government for for violating the mandate. So. Um, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree about his interpretation of that particular tax law jurisdiction question, but I, I think it's a mistake to view it as um, indicative of how he how he would approach the constitutional question of what the Commerce Clause allows or what the Tax Clause allows. He went out of his way in that decision to say he was not declaring that Congress's taxing authority empowered Congress to enact the individual mandate. And he also, in some ways, laid the groundwork for the conservative dissenters in Obamacare who said that the mandate was not authorized under the Commerce Clause and was un was unprecedented. I think to the extent we learn something about Judge Kavanaugh's approach to text from that opinion, what we learn is that whether it's going to help someone on the left or someone on the right or, or someone in the middle, it doesn't matter to Judge Kavanaugh. He's going to look at the text of a statute, even an obscure statute like the Anti-Injunction Act, and he's going to apply that text as it's been written by Congress. Maybe the the most salient piece of, of Supreme Court precedence that's been talked about since the nomination uh, is 
that of Roe versus Wade. And within the last day or so also, folks have been parsing a speech from last year that, that Judge Kavanaugh gave describing his esteem for former Chief Justice Rehnquist, in part based on that Chief Justice's attempt to um, fight against the precedent set in that original case. You know, that seems to be the, the, the central question that keeps coming up. What are your thoughts on, on that question as to, say, some state does pass a abortion prohibition and then a year or two that case gets before the court constituted now with Judge Kavanaugh? Is it the sort of thing where the Roe v. Wade precedent could, could easily be un, undone? And how would uh, Judge Kavanaugh, you think, uh, approach that kind of question? I think we can learn a lot about how Judge Kavanaugh would approach that particular precedent and also how he would approach every precedent by looking at a book that he wrote uh, along with 12 other distinguished judges called The Law of Judicial Precedents. And uh, I will will warn you uh, that it's a thousand pages long, so it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, I do not claim to have read every word of it. Uh, Maybe you have uh, listeners who... uh, imagine that kind of book to be fun beach reading, but I'm not, I'm not one of them, but it, but it is, it is a good book and I've given it a close look, even if I haven't read every word. And what I found is that on page after page after page and chapter after chapter after chapter, Judge Kavanaugh talks about the importance of fidelity to judicial precedence. And he talks about how that fidelity promotes the virtues of stability and restraint and impartiality. So to be specific with some of the things he says, he says that a change in a court's personnel should not throw former decisions open to reconsideration. And he talks about how, of course, under extraordinary circumstances, Brown v. Board comes to mind. Thank goodness it overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. But except in extraordinary circumstances like that, following established precedents helps keep the law settled. It furthers the rule of law. It promotes consistency and predictability. Uh, So... You know, we don't have to wonder whether or not Judge Kavanaugh will respect uh, will respect precedents. He 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 wrote the book on it. Um, then maybe just starting to to wrap up. Are, are there other areas of law that that you would look forward to sort of seeing a, a bit of a shift in? Obviously, you said you know the judge's personal belief is that the court shouldn't change direction too much based on one new member. But do you think, especially now with a couple of uh, new justices, that there could be different sort of types of cases or different areas of law that will see some, some growth or movement uh, in the next you know, 10, 20 years? You know, I've, I've uh, made enough bad predictions in the past <laughs> 10 years <laughs> that I'm cautious about making predictions about outcomes on certain issues. But uh, I can predict uh, that on every single issue, Judge Kavanaugh will start with the text. And how do I know that? Because that's what he's done in 300 opinions out of 300 opinions. And that's what he did every day for a year. So he'll start with the text. And he'll be guided by history and structure and precedent. And he will really approach every question in an independent, fair-minded way. Great. Then we'll go ahead and leave it there. Uh, Professor Justin Walker from University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Gail Trotter is an attorney and legal commentator. You've perhaps seen and heard her on outlets like Fox News and Fox Business. Ms. Trotter, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to join you. I had a few questions for you about this week's nomination of the latest Supreme Court justice, now to replace 
uh, Anthony Kennedy, Brett Kavanaugh from the D.C. Circuit. Um, you have welcomed this nomination pretty wholeheartedly, it's sort of starting generally. Overall, wh- wh- what are your thoughts on why this is a, a good selection? Sure. President Trump started one of the most transparent processes for selecting uh, Supreme Court nominations. He started the process before he was even elected by identifying a list of judges and other legal thought leaders whom he would turn to if vacancies arose on the court. And he added to that list in September 2017, and the list was compiled after speaking with uh, lots of experts in the field of constitutional law, and he relied on uh, the judgment of many people who have followed the Supreme Court very closely for many years. And when he had the opportunity to fill Justice Scalia's He picked a judge who was on the list, Judge Neil Gorsuch, and he has been a great success on the Supreme Court. And when uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement, the White House met with senators to discuss with them any concerns they had or any suggestions they had. And uh, President Trump went back and selected again, a judge from the list. And the list was compiled of the best and brightest legal minds from across the country. And even among that list of top performers, Judge Kavanaugh was an excellent suggestion. Um, He serves on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is colloquially called the second highest court in the land. It's a Mm -hmm. feeder court for justices to the Supreme Court. And he has a long record. He's served for 12 years, and he's written over 300 opinions. And he has impeccable academic credentials as well. So one element that's often you know, focused on, as aside from those credentials that you mentioned, is his Judge Kavanaugh's originalist tendencies and, and, and approach to jurisprudence. I suppose um, when that sort of idea is put forth that uh, a judge is an originalist, what sort of generally do you take that to mean? And, and, and in Judge Kavanaugh's particular uh, style, what does uh, originalism mean in, in his jurisprudence? Sure. Well, I'll use Judge Kavanaugh's own words. Judge Kavanaugh uh, gave a speech at the George Mason Law School, and he talked about how the judge's job is to interpret the law, not to make the law or make policy. So the idea is to read the words of the statute as written. Um, That's what Judge Kavanaugh has talked about at law schools around the country when he's given speeches. Uh, It also means just the idea that law has meaning. It's in opposition to the idea of the living Constitution, which really tries to insert the justices' public policy preferences into deciding cases and controversies before the Supreme Court. Um, It's a way to make sure that the Supreme Court does not become politicized, and instead it keeps the idea that the judiciary is an impartial arbiter of issues before it instead of being subject to the political winds and pressures of the day. Now with a, with a sort of a second consecutive, very devoted originalist um, potentially joining the bench um, and Judge Kavanaugh, what, uh, what are your thoughts on some potential doctrine or areas of law that could see the most impact uh, specifically with kind of the increased size of the originalist block? 
Right. That's a great point. Um, it's pretty much impossible to tell how a justice will vote on any particular case before the Supreme Court. And there are many examples that I can give to you of that. I think the most recent one was when Chief Justice John Roberts voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act, which was surprising to many people because Justice Anthony Kennedy was expected to be a swing vote. He actually voted to um, to not say that the Affordable Care Act was constitutional, but Chief Justice Roberts voted to uphold most of the Affordable Care Act. When you're thinking about other issues like abortion, uh, certainly when Republican presidents have nominated candidates to the Supreme Court, there has been a concerted effort to paint those nominees as threats to uh, the Roe v. Wade case to abortion rights. Um, that was it, that's nothing new. That's been done since the 1980s when President Ronald Reagan appointed the first female uh, justice to the Supreme Court, and that was used against her. It was also used against Anthony Kennedy when he was nominated by a Republican president. That tactic was also used against David Souter, who was nominated by a Republican president. But all three of those justices, Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Souter, all voted on the Supreme Court when the case came before them to uphold the core ruling of Roe v. Wade. Uh, when you think about the Second Amendment, um, certainly Judge Kavanaugh in cases that have come before him before at the D.C. Circuit has been a strong advocate of that constitutional right because it is in the black letter text of the Constitution. Uh, that That's a, another issue that might continue to come up. But we, when you look at the job of a Supreme Court justice, the hope is that they will be on the Supreme Court for several decades. And in some ways, it's impossible to predict what, what cases will come before them or what issues will arise several decades into the future. So if there is a single philosophical issue that is most important in selecting a nominee to the Supreme Court and confirming that nominee is to know that they're fair and independent and that they're faithful to the Constitution and that they understand that the job of a judge is to interpret the law and not to insert their public policy preferences or their own political uh, decisions into the process of um, the judicial branch. Just one one point to pull out there. Uh, interesting, as, as you mentioned, the concern over you know, the constitutional right to abortion derived from Roe coming up in previous Republican presidential nominations to the Supreme Court certainly is a, is a focus this time again. Is the idea um, that you would put forth sort of that, well, you know, look, there have been plenty of instances where that's been a concern before, and, and those justices that were nominated you know, voted subsequently to maintain that right, so perhaps there's not too much to worry about, or is it more, well, you just can't really know? I mean, I guess for some reason it feels different this time that the the both with Justice Gorsuch and perhaps Justice Kavanaugh, they seem like they could create a, a pretty solid block now that both, you know, obviously Justice O'Connor and Kennedy are gone from that Casey decision and Souter as well. So do you think that's a, a fair concern for folks to, to have at the, at the moment? That's a great point that you, you raise. Of the justices who are sitting on the Supreme Court right now, only one has 
publicly said that he would support overturning Roe v. Wade. That's Justice Clarence Thomas. And it is uh, a part of this originalist idea and the textualist idea of judicial philosophy that you do not insert your personal preferences onto the decisions of the Supreme Court. So where a uh, Supreme Court nominee might be personally opposed to abortion, if they don't feel like the law reflects that, then they are not going to insert their policy preference over what the law requires them to do. And you would see that in many different areas um, through Supreme Court jurisprudence where, you know, people, justices who subscribe to this very particular judicial philosophy would say, you know, I don't think this is a prudent decision, but the law says what it says. And we as a Supreme Court, we're not a legislative body. We are not going to pass laws, essentially. We are going to interpret laws. And if, if people don't like this, then they can work through their elected officials to garner support and change the law. And I think that is the critical step that critics of Justice Gorsuch and hopefully soon to be Justice Kavanaugh are missing in their criticism of uh, of his nomination. One, one focus of... The, the the news coverage since the nomination has has been issued uh, is in what way the, the the new justice if he is confirmed might need to um, hear or interact with you know uh, any sort of cases arising from any any further work of the the special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of, of President Trump whether for instance there's a, a subpoena issued or something like that I guess how much of an issue. Is, is that for folks to have in mind, you know, whether those kind of issues would come up to a subsequent Supreme Court in the next year or two? Sure. Uh, Carrie Severino, who's the chief counsel of the Judicial Crisis Network, wrote a great piece about this at National Review, which I would commend everyone to read. She talks about the history of presidential investigations and how the evidence from the history of what has been done in the past does not say that there's any reason to delay the, the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, there have been many investigations of many presidential administrations over the course of time, and the presidents have continued to do their constitutionally mandated job of appointing judges to the lower federal courts, uh, the district courts, the courts of appeal, appeals, and the Supreme Court. Um, you might remember with President Bill Clinton, he was subject to many investigations, and he can to nominate uh, candidates for the federal judiciary. And in fact, he nominated a justice to the Supreme Court also while he was under investigation. And that nomination was confirmed. That has been the case with many, many presidential administrations. So that that is one part of an answer to your question. The other part is where the president is subjected to investigation while in office, there is an excellent piece by Andy McCarthy, also at National Review. Andy McCarthy is a former federal prosecutor who was in charge of the prosecution of the blind shake who plotted to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993. And he's an astute legal observer of these really important issues of investigations and separation of powers. And Andy McCarthy goes at great length, has written many, many pieces about this over the course of the investigation, that the proper remedy generally for 
presidential misconduct is an impeachment process. Certainly, there should not be complete ban on investigation of of a president or his administration. You don't want to have the president hampered in the performance of his or her duties. But uh, any type of prosecution can certainly happen after the president's term is done. And the, the way that you remove a president immediately if there is some sort of uh, high crime or misdemeanor is to have the president impeached to have a groundswell of support for that. Certainly, Judge Kavanaugh has not said that he wants to have anybody above the law. And in fact, he's written pieces saying just the opposite. No one is above the law. And I think that that is something that is being mischaracterized. It's a, I don't want to say character assassination, but it's certainly a distortion of the record of what Judge Kavanaugh has ruled on and has written in various outlets. Okay, maybe just one other question on sort of areas of law that could, could be impacted by a confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. One area that seemed to be sort of the focus of um, the attention when Justice Gorsuch was confirmed was the idea of sort of trimming back and, and maybe curtailing a bit the the work of Article One type judges and the work of the you know, administrative state in creating regulations and interpreting them. Do you think that's one area of law that could see some development or some change in that continued direction were Judge Kavanaugh to be confirmed? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, if you look at the record of Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, He has definitely decided cases that protect American businesses from illegal job-killing regulations. He's expressed concern about the administrative state violating the separation of powers. He's written opinions talking about agency overreach and making sure that um, they're not unaccountable to the executive branch or even to Congress. Uh, As you know, Congress frequently will delegate some of its power to administrative agencies and then not follow through on the oversight. And that is a problem uh, because then nobody really essentially is oversighting, is providing oversight for these uh, actors in the agency. And it is something that can spiral out of control. And if you look at agencies like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, there's a certain ways that that was set up, that it um, violates the separation of power because the director, there's a single director of the CFPB, and that director has a tremendous amount of power and can't be removed by the president except for cause, which is not how uh, the president exercises power with other people that he puts into the cabinet or other places, for example. And Judge Kavanaugh has written very strongly that that can pose a threat to individual liberty and the constitutional system of separation and power. And you also um, ruled on the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and the PCAOB, which deals with uh, accounting oversight, accounting oversight board. And his opinion on that was adopted by the Supreme Court in a five to four opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts. And that's not the only time when uh, Judge Kavanaugh's legal reasoning has been adopted by the Supreme Court. He's a real thought leader. So I think it's great that you brought up this area because I do think you will see that there is an increased attention to making sure that agencies are not overreaching and that the separation of powers issue is being respected. 
It's, uh, reminds me of one other thing that uh, I know is is brought up ha- has been brought up in, in in the last few days and was with uh, the previous uh, nomination of Judge Gorsuch. You referenced Judge Kavanaugh's concern over the separation of powers questions regarding agencies like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Certainly, that's a, a fair way to to frame it. Um, others have framed it differently. That uh, you know Justice Gorsuch might tip sort of towards the, the the protection of corporate entities more than individuals or consumers. Uh, what, what is your response to, to those sorts of concerns about about Judge Kavanaugh? Well, the, um, the way that Congress acts is constant balancing between individual liberties and protections. And there is definitely a concern that if you have agencies that are unaccountable to Congress or to the president, then they can wield an inordinate amount of power. And as they say, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that's a key provision that the founders put in the Constitution to protect against power being wielded so much so that it distorts the way that uh, transactions are conducted in, in America and the way that people are able to exercise their rights in a free society. And if these types of checks and balances are completely disregarded in setting up these quasi-independent agencies, then the ability to rein them in is lost. So I think you are right. You will, you will see arguments made against Judge Kavanaugh's position on this, saying that consumers might not be protected or that corporations will have more power. But the truth is when you're looking at the difference between a free society and the government having the power but having unaccountable power, then that is where individual liberty is lost and that is what should be reflected on. Okay, then just uh, one last one looking ahead. How would you preview the, uh, the confirmation process of Judge Judge Kavanaugh. Do you think this will be from uh, a smooth, mediumly rocky to a very bumpy road here in the next uh, couple of months? I think you will see more controversy in the um, opposition's attacks on Judge Kavanaugh than we saw with Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch's nomination process. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the judge that he's replacing, the justice that he's replacing was a swing vote and was not a committed originalist or committed textualist. So there will definitely be more opposition to his nomination from the left and from the Democratic Party. Uh, but there are Democratic senators from red states that voted for President Trump in 2016. And when exit polls were done of voters in the 2016 presidential election, one out of five of those voters said that the Supreme Court nomination process was the primary reason that they voted. And when they asked those one out of five people who said the Supreme Court was the primary reason who they voted for, 58% of those people said that they chose to vote for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So for those Democratic senators in states that voted for President Trump, they're going to have to decide whether to align with the um, National Democratic Party or if they're going to align with the views of their constituents. In, for example, North Dakota with Heidi Heitkamp, 68% of voters in North Dakota want her to confirm President Trump's nominee. So Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Clara McCaskill, we're going to be looking at these senators and see if they 
stayed true to their constituents or if they get pulled into the maelstrom of the National Democratic Party trying to oppose this nomination. You are going to see lots of meetings between Judge Kavanaugh and all the senators. Um, He's going to meet with the more moderate Republicans, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Senator Susan Collins of Maine. I'm sure they're going to ask him tough questions about his record on, you know, he has 300 opinions, so they're certainly going to go into depth on his legal opinions, any writings that he's done. And you're going to, I think, see in August the confirmation hearing start, the public discussion of the nomination. And the hope is that he will have a vote and be confirmed before the Supreme Court comes back to the to Washington, D.C. to resume their term, to start their new term in October. And if all goes well, that will hopefully be the result of all this effort. Okay. We'll, we'll certainly find out here in the next, uh, the next several weeks, uh, but we'll leave it there. For now, Ms. Gail Trotter, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you. Sanford Levinson is the W. St. John Garwood and W. St. John Garwood Jr. Centennial Chair at the University of Texas Austin Law School. He's a longtime constitutional law scholar and author of, among several other books, Our Undemocratic Constitution, Where the Constitution Goes Wrong and How We the People can correct it. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. Um, so you are a, a, a longtime scholar on constitutional law and, and write, uh, you've written very extensively on the court and its membership and its, its processes. One thing you've written about is the, the role of the court and the way in which it strives and often succeeds to keep the country sort of together, a country that's in many ways divisive, keeps them folks together in, in such a way that they appreciate the court as providing a fair and just result to questions that uh, can't be resolved any other way, really. You wondered in some of your writing, is the proper role of the court to, to lead the country, to more reflect it, to, to do neither, and just follow the kind of the original sure. way of the Constitution? What, what, what yeah, is your um, I got my PhD in political science um, actually about 50 years ago. My advisor and mentor was Robert McCoskey, who wrote a really great short book called The American Supreme Court, which I've basically kept in print by updating it. But the McCoskey thesis was that the role of the court was basically to either push ahead a little bit when political institutions were blocked or to restrain a little bit when political institutions seem to be too eager to change things. But the point he made is that the court would not be effective if it either pushed too hard towards some kind of vision that it had that was not basically shared by most of the country, or if it tried to rein in too much a political movement that really had captured the country. So the best example of the latter is clearly the attempt of the conservative court to block the New Deal and the crisis that led to. So I think there's a lot of truth to the McCoskey argument that over its history you can point to where the court was something of an innovator 
or something of a leash where it was successful in doing that. And then you can point to other episodes where it just overreached and there was pushback. And so I think that the real question raised not only by Kavanaugh's appointment, but by the current court more generally, is whether it is so much more right-wing than the so-called median voter or kind of center of American politics that its decisions will be viewed more and more as the product of a quite ideological and unrepresentative wing of American conservatism. You've also Also, written a bit about judicial methodologies as opposed to comparing, say, originalism and living constitutional constitutional approaches and how it's probably best to agree that there is a plurality of ways to approach these things. Right. Um, right. The last two justices are more devoted originalists. Does that, I guess, what do you think that sort of doctrine means to, to those justices? Or I guess, what do you think the addition of two strong originalist justices means for the future of, of yeah. this court? I mean, I confess I don't take most of these sort of methodological arguments with a great deal of seriousness. I think that originalism will allow you to get wherever you want to go because the historical record is always going to be sufficiently complicated and nuanced that, as some judge put it quite a few years ago, you can always find your friends at the cocktail party. And so you can always find your friends in... Jefferson, Hamilton, um, other framers who, most of whom are less famous, but who can be quoted to go where you want to go. So I think right now it's the case that originalism is viewed as a conservative method. But when I was growing up, the great originalist was Hugo Black who quoted the framers with regard to very, very expansive notions of the First Amendment and who you know, is really the architect in many ways of the modern doctrine of freedom of speech because he loved to quote Jefferson and Madison and he loved to quote, in fact, obscure figures from English history in the 17th century. I think the reality is that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are movement conservatives who have glommed on to the fact that originalism became identified with political conservatism in the 1980s, particularly with Ed Meese when he was attorney general and some stuff that was coming out of the Justice Department then. But I don't think that a faithful originalist will necessarily end up with any given conclusions that would be contrary you know, to what most living constitutionalists would want, quite frankly. A couple of other broader questions that you... There 
have been plenty of folks on the left of political center since really the failed nomination of, of Merrick Garland, and now until now, a bit more discomfited with the the way in which judges are nominated and, and sort of mm-hmm. for life. Mm-hmm. You, you've written previously in, in multiple instances that perhaps judicial term limits of, say, 18 years would be yeah. a, a better way for the court to function because, for one thing, it would sort of ensure that the the regularity of the, the overturning you know, or the exchanging of, of those roles and it wouldn't be kind of as un, uncertain and uh, as it is now. What, what are your um, thoughts on that? And do you think sort of there could be any revitalized push for something like that in the well, future? Yeah, I would hope so. I think life tenure for Supreme Court judges is just crazy. I mean, I liked Justice Stevens. I admired him. But I see no good reason why somebody should serve in the Supreme Court for 34 years until he reaches the age of 90. I think an 18-year term limit would be eminently more sensible. It would assure a new appointment every two years, it would mean that no single president, even in, in a two-term, eight-year term, would be able to appoint more than four of the nine judges. It would remove some of the psychodrama of judicial appointments where you know, we read stuff, which is true, that this could affect the court for a generation, not merely my own life. I mean, I'm 77, so, you know, it's clear that I'm not going to see who's on the court in 2040 or the like, but my children or grandchildren could also live with the current Republican majority for another 20 or 25 years, and I think that's crazy. And here I think it's especially useful not only to look at how other countries do it. I mean, if you want to talk about American exceptionalism, the way we name judges and keep them on courts forever is exceptional around the world. But what I would really, really emphasize for your listeners is that it's exceptional within the United States as well. Because if you look at American states and state constitutions, then... Either 48 or 49 of the 50 states reject full life tenure. Most of them elect judges, which raises separate problems. But none of, with with either one or two exceptions, Rhode Island and maybe New Hampshire, none of them has signed on to judges serving forever. I would like to see serious discussion of it. But as a matter of fact, I am not a particular fan of the United States Constitution. And one of the things I really dislike about the Constitution is that it's next to impossible to amend it so that we don't have a serious discussion outside of the academy about this whole issue of life tenure. There are a lot of academics who are talking about the stupidity of life tenure, and who are talking about the stupidity of our overall appointment system. But it really doesn't get much purchase in the non-academic world because there's a feeling that nothing can be done about it. One other potential change that has been bandied about by at least uh, some folks in, in the, the wake of Anthony Kennedy's retirement is the notion that in, the, in some future time, justices be added to the Supreme Court, the court be packed, 
essentially, right. um, a reprise right. of the, the New Deal era idea. And yeah. what, what are your thoughts yeah. on, on that? Well, I, mean, I think that the new reality, I want to say, you know, it's not a brand new reality, because the politicization of the judiciary goes back to John Adams' midnight judges in 1800. So it's always been the case that judicial appointments are part of the political process. This is an important aspect of Robert McCoskey's work. That being said, I think that the Merrick-Garland event changed things because it made it crystal clear that appointments to the Supreme Court are now a spoil of elections. And there is no pretext that anything other than ideology is relevant to appointment. That, I mean, when Republicans say that Kavanaugh should get quick confirmation because he's so competent and smart, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, you know, that's correct. But he's certainly no smarter or more competent or more impressive than Merrick Garland. The reason Merrick Garland never even got a hearing is that he was a Democrat. And so that really exposed things in a way that just made it impossible to have any pretense that appointments to the federal judiciary have anything to do with other than what political tribe you belong to. So... To get to your question, if the Democrats win in 2020 and have the Senate, then it would seem to me perfectly proper to talk about raising the membership to 11 or 13 to grab the judiciary back. From my perspective, you know, halfway as an academic, halfway as a Democrat, the Republicans stole the seat that should have gone to Merrick Garland, and that it's simply a matter of politics as to whether, in effect, the Democrats should try to steal the court back. Now, the problem with this argument is that it further politicizes the court. There are good reasons to you know, be opposed to what I'm saying. So, you know, if, in fact... In 2020 or 2021, there's a Democratic president, a Democratic Congress, and one of the Republican justices has suffered a premature death, then quite frankly, you wouldn't need to talk about court packing. The system kind of would work as it naturally works. But if in fact the Republicans are all hanging on, and you know to a moral certainty that they're not going to retire unless and until a Republican president succeeded to office, then I think, you know, court packing is uh, as American as apple pie. It occurred with some frequency up until 1871. It might have occurred in the late 1930s had the Supreme Court not switched with regard to the constitutionality of the New Deal. And I think that, you know, it is just a sign 
of the deepening political and constitutional dysfunctionality that you're now beginning to get some serious conversation about court packing. It is not healthy for our political system that we're having this conversation. But it's not healthy for our political system that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans of the Senate stole the seat that should have gone to Merrick Garland. Okay, maybe then just uh, to start to wrap up, focusing back on the nomination of, of Judge Brett Kavanaugh, what are your thoughts on the judge in terms of kind of his judicial approach, his, his background, and, and the ways he could impact uh, the court where he confirmed? There is no evidence that I have seen that would lead to a description of him as other than a movement conservative. Uh, some of the political scientists who have studied his opinions more than I have, to be quite frank, but they've looked at his opinions, they have constructed tables kind of indicating where he would be on the current court. And what they indicate on the basis of his 300 opinions for the D.C. Circuit is that he would be to the right of Neil Gorsuch and maybe to the left of Justice Thomas, who is the furthest right, but that he is significantly more conservative than John Roberts, for example, and is really a hardcore conservative who would be ready, willing, and able to wreak havoc with a great many current doctrines of the U.S. Supreme Court and or doctrines that are coming up. What scares me most about Gorsuch, about Kavanaugh, quite frankly, is that he seems to see basically no limits to presidential power. And so that the Hawaii decision of a couple weeks ago, a 5-4 to four decision, five Republicans against the four Democrats, uh, I thought it was a terrible decision. I think it is really very ominous simply basically to rubber stamp executive behavior with regard to foreign and military policy. And that's Kavanaugh. There are a number of very, very important Guantanamo-related decisions that the D.C. Circuit has decided where he basically does give the president a blank check. And my own hope is that the hearings explore that aspect of his background, because I really don't think that a majority of Americans want a judge who will simply be a cat's paw of whatever the president thinks wise or, or more to the point, thinks politically profitable with regard to military and foreign policy. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because, if I recall correctly, uh, Justice Kennedy was a swing vote, who, of course, was uh, whom Judge Kavanaugh clerked for. Uh, Kennedy was a swing vote in a Guantanamo-related case, ensuring right. habeas corpus rights. Right, but it's important to realize that Kennedy's final vote in the Hawaii case, he joined an opinion that basically, you know, let, well, not basically, it did, in fact, uphold in full Donald Trump's travel ban. And 
Kennedy wrote a rather pathetic concurring opinion in which he said something in fact that he certainly hopes that the president will, you know, conform his actions to, you know, our American values, yada, yada, yada. But if there's anything we know about Donald Trump is that he's not going to conform his actions to traditional American values. And Kennedy, when push came to shove, said it didn't matter. And if you look particularly, I mean, Kennedy's high point with regard to you know, doing some reigning in an executive power was the Boumediene decision back in, I think, 2008. But if you look at the decisions, the pattern and practice of the D.C. Circuit, the conservatives on the D.C. Circuit, led by Lawrence Silberman and Kavanaugh, basically have over and over again expressed their contempt for Boumediene, and have you know interpreted executive power extremely generously, and the Supreme Court, quite frankly, has been absent without leave. You know, you can view Boumediene, if you wish, as a bit of judicial grandstanding, where they said, "Oh, we're going to stand up for the rule of law," but they've never returned to it. They have been willing to let the D.C. Circuit do whatever it wants to do. They have not reviewed any of the cases. And you know, from the perspective of a political scientist, I would say the D.C. Circuit is far, far more important than the Supreme Court of the United States with regard to the actual implementation of Midian and the actual enforcement of any rights that detainees might have. And so that's where it really is important to look at Kavanaugh's actual opinions. There's a very good op-ed in today's Washington Post by a UT colleague of mine named Stephen Vladek, who is really an expert on national security law in a way that I'm not. And he points out that Kavanaugh is an extremist, even within the D.C. Circuit, with regard to the latitude that he's willing to give the executive branch. And maybe just just one last one to do a, a bit of sort of political prognosticating. Do you have a sense of how the next couple of months might go in terms of the confirmation process? You know, I'm inclined to quote Yogi Berra that it's really hard to predict the future. I think that Robert Mueller is a wild card, that if Mueller actually does anything significant in the next six weeks, that could change the atmospherics considerably. You know, who knows? Uh, I doubt that anything is going to come out on Kavanaugh that would, you know, raise serious questions of character, etc., uh, I do not expect any of the Republican senators show any backbone. Susan Collins, I think, is basically a fraud with regard to her declaration that you know she won't vote for somebody who she views as a threat to Roe. There is no reason at all to believe that Kavanaugh will not vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. If Susan Collins 
doesn't believe that, she's simply kidding herself. But I see no reason to think that she is suddenly going to be enlightened on that. So, you know, I would bet that he's going to be confirmed. But I do think that Robert Mueller is the wild card. Yeah, certainly don't think that uh, him buying too many Washington Nationals tickets is going to take him down. So we'll see, though. Um, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Sanford Levinson from UT Austin School of Law. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's our show for July 13th, 2018. Thanks for more time to all three of our guests, Justin Walker, Gail Trotter, and Sanford Levinson. Thanks to my production staff here, Principal Nick Perez, and thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours by finding and completing a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Also, don't forget to find and rate and subscribe to us on iTunes if you are so inclined to search Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.